0: So we're learning about the Baini who does not serve God, meaning though even though he, he's a Baini, so he's never in his life, and I we mean the subjective sense of life he's living now, ever committed a sin or would commit a sin because it's the most important, because it's just out of the question for him to sin, and even the most difficult sin not to commit, which is what is the most difficult sin not to commit? Neglecting Torah study, which doesn't apply to you, so there you go. But that is the most difficult sin not to commit, why? Because when does a man have to be studying Torah? Always. Always, unless he has something better to do, right? Which is kind of a hard, that's a, a serious degree of vigilance. So how could you have somebody who is that pious, that devout, and yet they are not serving God? And the also said, because they are not fighting a war against their evil disposition, and the idea is that to serve God, you need, it's about using the divine light of the Godly soul, which resides in the mind, to overcome the evil disposition that resides in the heart. If you're not engaged in that battle, then you're not serving God. And so this person, they are not engaged in that battle, and therefore even though they're doing all the right things, they cannot be considered one who serves God. Okay, that's where we left off, yes? So we are on the, do you guys have page numbers? Did we get the page numbers in or not? Yeah. Yeah. Page 41. 41. Okay. So we're chapter, we are, what page number is it? This is 40. 41. 40, where's the page number? Okay, oh, yeah. So we're on page 40 on the far right column at the bottom. Um, second to last line for his disposition. For his disposition does not confront him at all. Turn the page. In an attempt to distract him from study and prayer, and he is consequently never obliged to wage war against it. Okay. So the reason why this person is not engaged in this war is because the enemy is not fighting. Right. Um, to put to illustrate this very simply, most of us—I will not say all of us, but most of us. Um, have opinions about how people should conduct themselves in wartime, in wartime. If you read a story about someone in wartime and you're like, ooh, they shouldn't have done that, that was immoral, or that was moral, or that was heroic. Right? We, 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 you know, we may not share those opinions publicly, but we do because human beings are judgmental. We pass judgment on other people in our own minds. Okay, have any, I mean, and most of us have not been in a war zone, right? Okay. Why have we not been in a war zone? Because by Heshkacha protest, by divine providence, we've lived in places where people weren't attacking, right? But as anybody in Ukraine will tell you, right, that one day you could be living in a country that's not a war zone and the next day... And when you are in a war zone, everything is different? Yeah. Okay. So, in the same way, somebody... There's somebody who does not, ha- not have this internal war. They're not fighting this internal war. The reason why they're not fighting this internal war is because there's no enemy. The enemy's not fighting them, right? Now, I want to just point out, that person, therefore, is living a very different life. Just think about this. Just the same way us living in a, in a country with an economy a society that's not in a war zone, right? Our notion of what is moral and immoral is going to be very different than if you were living in an actual war zone, right? Yeah. Similarly, if you are a person whose evil inclination does not actually attempt to distract you from Torah study and prayer, your sense of what is and isn't the right way to live life is probably going to be very different than the rest of us whose evil inclination does distract us, yes? Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah. Okay, so the internal plane, the internal experience is very going to be very, very different, okay? Um, now, he's going to go through and, and, and describe a person who's like this. But before I do, I want to, I want to um, tell a story. There was a rabbi named Rabbi Zwiebel, which sounds very Jewish, right? Do you know what a Zwiebel is? Zwiebel. An, yeah, an onion.
1: An onion, which I think
0: is just funny if you think about it in English, Rabbi Onion. Okay. <laughs> which makes him sound like different. But rabbi Rabbi Zwiebel, he was a a great Torah scholar, Um, and he was, I want to tell some stories about him just because I think it's nice to tell stories about people and then you have a sense of the kind of person he was and then the story that actually is relevant to what we're talking about here. Um, First off, he was a phenomenal Torah scholar. Um, The story goes that one time he was, uh, yeah, one time, um, somebody found a piece of a page from a uh, holy book, a Hasidic minor, Um and asked him which book it belongs to. It was just like the side of the page was ripped out, and he asked him, are you making fun of me? He said, no, no, I just want to know a book to back, put it back into it. He told him which book, which page it was. Um, All the pages look the same, by the way. Uh-huh. He knew the Talmud by heart, the major commentaries by heart. He was, he was a, He's a real genius. Wait, where, When did he live? When did he live? He passed away, I think, four years ago, five years ago. Yeah, he was a he was a kh- mashpia, the Chassidic mentor of the Morristown Yeshiva. That's, That's recent. in. What in New Jersey? Some, some really, really recent. Really recent. He um, he 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 lived a, he lived in the clouds, like totally, like his whole world was Torah study. Um, the story he didn't know how to drive. Me? I don't know. He didn't know how to drive. Um, So one time, the car car broke down, his wife gets out to change the tire, and at some point he realizes that the car has stopped, and he looks around, and he sees that there's a hammer, and he picks up the hammer and turns to his wife and says, do you maybe need this? Because he he didn't know that you don't use hammers to change the the tires. Like, I'm telling you, he was, like, completely in another world. Um, Completely. I know, sorry. um, Because I know people who know him. I I mean, I actually started in Morristown, so I knew him also. Um, Completely like, his wife, I think his wife's still alive actually, I'm not sure, but she was like completely the opposite. Like, um, he forbringed once, I never attended his class, I once asked him a question. What was the question what was You answer? The question was, I was stuck on a commentary named Reb Chaim It was known as just Reb Chaim, and I didn't understand something, and in my hot-headed youth I thought, like, this is the most important issue that I don't understand. I have this very difficult question. And I went up to his office and I knocked on the door very emphatically that I have a question. And he opened the door and he was sitting with another student. And he looked at me and said, can I help you? And I said, I have a difficulty with Reb Chaim, as I said in Hebrew. And and he answered me in Yiddish. And he said, well, then maybe you should ask Reb Chaim yourself. And he, yeah, that- and he said that and he with a twinkle in his eye and closed the door. Um, and from this, I learned that just because you don't understand and you're like, it's the end of the world, I don't understand. It's like, maybe if you calm down and think about it, you can figure out the answer yourself. you, know I mean? you so, figure like, it out? Yes. Actually? Yes. On your own? I mean, it took a while, but yeah. Mm-hmm. So it was an important learning experience in my life. Uh, but so the thing was, is that he, he, he was known for being exceptionally humble. And what I mean by humble is that he was very he felt that all the students in the yeshiva were greater than him but like you could like tell the way he related to them and the reason was he's like i love learning they're, these people these these here, they're not here because they're just naturally into learning and yet they spend all their day doing it and they're push themselves and he just felt like like these are he felt like he was in the presence of great people because you've all these like teenage boys who are not <laughs> their head in the sky learning torah and yet, what are they spending their day doing and trying to push themselves some more, some less? And he, he like, not something he, I mean, for once in a while it come out of his mouth, but it, it was in the way he exuded himself. There was just this sense of, like, he didn't feel superior. He felt very, like, it was in the, in the presence of people who are truly greater than himself, even though all of us felt the opposite. And that's because he felt that there was a sense that we're people who actually have to fight this war, this battle, and he's somebody, at least when it comes to this area, it was just very natural for him. So although it doesn't explicitly say this, I think one of the things that, that that would come across, if a person discovers that they are in this category of someone who does not have to fight the war, that should make, before we get to the idea that you really should fight a war, against that, but that should create a, a tremendous amount of humility, a sense that you're in the presence of someone great. And, and you can extend that to anything, any area of life where you see that someone is struggling. Um, even though when it comes to the actual thing, you may be on a superior level with them because you're not struggling with this thing and they are. When it comes to the person underneath, you should have a sense you're in the presence of a great person Because they're struggling or because they pain their struggle because they're struggling because, to, because that there's some greatness in that there's something significant in that. Okay? Um, and that's a sign that's a sign that's a sign of, of a person who, who gets it. Um, even Sadiqim, it says Sadiqim who've truly really gone beyond the struggle. Not that they don't need to struggle because their evil inclination isn't bothering, as we're going to discuss here, but they've actually mastered themselves. Um, a sign of a tzaddik also is that they feel a tremendous amount of humility in the presence of someone who's not a tzaddik. And that's, I think, an important thing just to like stop outside the direct flow of the text and think about it. There are people who really don't have to struggle with things. If the person really appreciates what that means, again, going back to the idea of being in a war, if you don't live in a war zone and you realize somebody else lives in the war zone and they are making choices and dealing with those kinds of horrific things, how do you feel when you think about, as a, on the level of character, when you think about that person versus yourself? Do you feel you feel? I mean, I would hope you would feel a sense of humility, a sense of smallness compared to what this person is able is, is confronting and dealing with, right? So. On that very just basic level, again, that's not the point he's driving at. The point he's driving at is the importance of, of, of having the battle. And we're going to talk about how even someone like this can and can, should have a battle. But if you don't, that should not be a reason to feel superior. That should be a reason to feel humble. Okay. Now, how can you have a person who's, who's on the one hand, is not a tzaddik, he's not achieved self-mastery, that's totally devoted to God, not a servant of God. And on the other hand, he's not fighting a war. He's not, he's not struggling to actually live the life that God commands us to live. How could that be? So, thus, for example, is the case of one who is by nature an assiduous student because he was organically so disposed. What does that mean? There are some people, there's people who are are naturally studious. Why are they naturally studious? Yeah. It's, yeah. it's it's organic. Okay. So um in Hasidus, it discusses the different kinds of natures that people have. Um, How to exactly correlate them with modern um, personality types is an interesting discussion, so I'm not going to attempt to do that. I'm just going to attempt to describe them as they are in Hasidus. So there's some people who tend to naturally have have a certain kind of tendency. First of all, everyone has these tendencies. The question is a matter of degree. So some people are more um, focused. In other words, they get caught up in something and they really pursue it. They really are dedicated to it. It really – now, that's not necessarily a good thing, by the way. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just the nature. So, for instance, if someone becomes – if someone has that kind of nature and they become curious about a particular topic, what happens? They read a lot about it. They study a lot about it. So, they really know it, right? On the other hand, if what happens if that person starts to engage in self-criticism, then what happens to themselves? of a person is like the kind this kind of person who's like Focus. focuses on something very intensely and you start engaging in self-criticism. And they're only on self-criticism. And what does that do to the kind of life they're right. So this same tendency, is understood the, the same tendency that leads a person to be very studious, very um, Focused on understanding and knowing and, and, and making sense of things is also the same tendency that gets people to be very wrapped up in themselves and self loathing. It, it's the like same perfection- nature. Uh, it's not about a I, 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 no. I think perfectionism is a more of a is a learned thing. This is this you is know, the is a more of a learned sense. thing. Yeah, this is just an this is just like a a temperamental mm-hmm. thing that the, the, it's not a perfection. It's it's a sense that that of of. in a certain sense, really prizing quality, really valuing the quality of something. So if you're going to go into it, you're going to it. But perfectionism is a little bit different. I'll explain to you what I mean by the difference is that one of the things that happens in perfectionism is that if you're not going to be able to do it 100%, you don't do it at all. That's not what I'm talking about. That's a learned behavior. That's like a kind of a coping mechanism people pick up. This is just the sense that like, If if it's worth knowing, it's worth knowing to the maximum. If it's a problem, we have to get to the depths of the problem, right? If I'm going to be friends with somebody, this kind of person is going to be friends. What kind of friendship is this kind of person going to have? Very deep friendships. But how many friendships is this person going to have? Few. Few. Very few. Okay, so, well, and then there's they're these... Few, what? Have. Because they're, the, for this person, friendship is either something that's really it's deep in demand. It's not all or nothing. It's just a practicality thing that it takes so much. There's not much left over. In other words, now there's some people that are the opposite. That to them, they move quickly from one thing to another. Um, they, they're they able to appreciate a variety of different things. Um, so like, we just give you an example. There's, a, some, there's two people go to a party. One person scans the room to find someone they know well and wants to spend the rest of the party talking to that one person. Not because they're not capable, not because they're necessarily socially awkward, but like that's, that's what make them feel like the evening was, was spent well. And for someone else, it would be the opposite. That to spend your night talking to only one person seemed like a waste of an evening, right? Or would be a good, the opposite. They want to meet all the different kinds of people, get to know them, right? Is one of these better than the other? Yeah. No. Now, but one of those does kind of work well with the Torah requirement on men to be studying whenever possible, right? Mm-hmm. If you have that kind of tendency Again, it has negative side effects also. Okay, right? You know, A person who sees a problem um, and they have this kind of studious, deeper tendency, and they see a problem, they get stuck in that problem much easier. Okay? So it's not necessarily an inherently good or negative thing, but one lends itself to the Torah requirement of constant studying of Torah. So the person who has life of the party and wants to always meet new people and see new things and is always curious about the other thing and has a hard time just... Really, doing one thing to the end is not going to, is going to be a very difficult time with the Torah's requirement on men to be studying Torah all day. Um, this has created an actual genuine educational problem. The yeshivas that we have for men are designed originally for whom? For studious people, because the yeshivas were originally set up. The yeshiva system is actually, the modern yeshiva system is actually um, not that old, it only goes back to around the be- early 1800s, and it was set up as a way for the serious Torah student to have their, their physical and educational needs kind of taken care of rather than being done on an ad hoc basis. It used to be, there was a person who taught and you go to the town where he taught and you kind of had to arrange for your own like room and board and find your teacher and whatever. And then there was idea, yeah, we'll set up an institution. But that institution was, not, was, not, was designed for people who were, who were dedicated to study. Now we use these edu- edu- things to educate everybody in order to like ensure a level of religiosity. So it becomes a whole issue, like how do you do that? For instance, in the original yeshiva in, in the town of Lubavitch that was founded um, in the late 1800s, um, right before the turn of the century. you wanna know what the schedule was? It was two hours of Hasidus in the morning starting at 7 or 7.30, depending on the davening times. So well i listen to the schedule. Okay, so two hours of chassidus, then there was a two-hour break. During that two-hour break was your time for davening and breakfast and any other things you had to take care of. Then there was eight uninterrupted hours of Talmud study, followed by another two-hour break, followed by another two hours of chassidus. That was the schedule. Is that currently the schedule? It's no. no, it's not currently the schedule. The schedule is similar, but they've reduced the number of hours. Right. So the I breaks, think yeah, but if you run through those hours, if you go from seven to nine, nine to 11, mm-hmm. 11 to seven, we're seven, seven to nine, breath. right? That's 11, right? You're, you're, oh. you're, that means your official day ends at 11 o'clock at night. And by the way, those, those, those break hours were for prayers as well in mean, the morning prayers right. you know there were many bacham who didn't have time for breakfast because they were spending all their time praying um so there, there, there's this so if you have this kind of nature it, it really works well with the torah's requirement for a man to be studying all day now if you were talking about a woman being a bainani and not um serving god with this with this natural tendency be a be a necessary prerequisite no, because there's not an inherent... Remember, there's one of the halakhidrists in men and women is that women, while men women are obligated to study because the study is towards the goal of knowing and observing rather than the act of study itself, right? As long as a woman is studying as enough. as she needs to study, there isn't an inherent need for her to be studying as much as possible. So now, while it is... Uh, to be fair, though, since a woman has to study some amount, if she's lacking in this tendency it, tremendously, that could create a problem also. Okay. But for but for sure, for a man, it's very difficult for a man to not be in violation of the way God wants them to live their life. Without putting any effort, if they don't, if they don't have this natural tendency to be hyper focused and get to the depths of things and be very more um, quality and introverted focused rather than more outgoing and. Um, so for a man, the mitzvah of Torah learning is the actual process. Mm-hmm. For a woman, it's the end result. There's no mitzvah for a woman. There's an obligation that comes from other things. A woman has a mitzvah to, n- mitzvah to do to other things, and therefore she needs to know the Torah in order to do that, which ends up meaning a lot of Torah study and practice, especially if you're not learning it in the home, which we don't do anymore, even in religious institutions. I mean, it used to be that your average Jewish woman, by the time she was a teenager, was quite proficient in the laws of kosher food because her mother taught her the laws of kosher food, and more than many rabbis nowadays know, like how to salt meat, how to how to check an animal to see if it's kosher or not, like all sorts of things. And there's, when we moved out of the kind of agrarian societies, a lot of that stuff got lost. People stopped educating their children. Now we now we trusted the teachers, rightly or wrongly. Okay, so that's one character. So, we're going to have a, so characteristic number one, which would be necessary for a person to be completely pious and they're observant and yet not actually have to engage in a battle, would be they would have to have this assiduous nature to really study, to delve deeply, to not get distracted by things. Okay. Can, can I give you an example of this? This is a little personal like observation of mine. Um, I have noticed that many times students forget what we've been studying between one class and the next. Have you ever noticed this phenomenon? Yes. Okay. Now, I've noticed that it is not true about all students. What other things would predict which students tend to forget? Like if I say, where are we holding? Like there's students like, like, I can have it in my notes and there's students like, it's right off the tip of their tongue, this last thing we discussed, even though it was a week ago. What's gonna predict which students are the ones that are gonna have it? if you were thinking about it okay but what's going to predict whether they're thinking about it so you have two things some people have decided that it's really important they're going to work very hard right but some people they're just not that's absolutely it's the person who's just more intellectually engaged to begin with by nature like the ideas are interesting to them and they speak to them and they seem very important to them and they seem worth cultivating and developing, and so they naturally, after the class is over, they think about them, and so a week goes by, they've been thinking about it, not because they're trying, but because their that's their personality, right? There's the other person who's like, okay, I don't feel that way, but I know it's important, so I better I better do that, okay? It's that first type of person who can fulfill the, 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 the Torah lifestyle without really putting in the effort, at least in that dimension. Is this a very common thing? No, it's not that common. Is it very, very, very rare? It's also not very, very rare. Now, to have an extreme is pretty rare, but... Okay. Likewise, is free from conflict regard to sexual desire by reason of his frigid nature. Okay, there's another thing. The Torah places a lot of restrictions regarding sexual behavior, both actual behavior, fantasizing, watching. And by the way, um, contrary to popular belief, these are gender-neutral in other words, there is the, in other words, there is no actual like carte blanche. Oh, sexuality is forbidden for men and okay for women. The Torah has issues with unrestricted sexual behavior, whether it's mental behavior, or physical behavior, both for men and for women. So that means most people have to engage in some degree of self control and self monitoring and self governance in order to live a Torah lifestyle, right? How can you have a person who just doesn't have to put any effort into that? They must be naturally frigid, and that that does exist also. So now we've got now we've got two things which are not so common have to converge. They're they're very very studious and deep and 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 and, and focused by nature. And in addition to that, they're also a rigid person by nature. How many people are like that that have both qualities? Number I don't know the exact numbers, but that, that that that's a very significant. That's a very small minority of the population. Yeah. Does a tzaddik have all these traits? No, no, because a tzaddik, I'm going to talk about it, I'm going to come back, this isn't talking about someone who's not a tzaddik, but a baini, but doesn't serve God. I'm going to come back and talk about a tzaddik and how they're different in all these regards, okay? I'm going to get to that. And last, similarly with other mundane pleasures, wherein he naturally lacks any feeling of enjoyment. Okay? There is this thing that some people enjoy things in the world and some people less so. Let me give you some examples. Um, let's use food. Okay. How important is it to you that the food be just right? Taste, temperature, texture. Would you say that's a high priority for you or a low priority for you? You say low, you say high and and that people vary, right? Like, I, for me, it's a very high priority. Like, like I am very sensitive to the food is like, I like my food exactly a certain way. And like, I can test it. it's overcooked. It's undercooked. It's this, it's that. My wife was not like, that. as long as the food is not repulsive, it's food. It's, you know, and some food tastes better. Some food tastes worse, but it's okay. My father, my father will eat anything that isn't spoiled. <laughs> um, you know, different people have different sensitivities to these things. Yeah. Um, you know, and then you have the same thing with say aesthetics. Some people, like they go to a place and like the fact that it's drabby, like really grates on them and other people, it's like whatever, right? Some people, the temperature, if it's too hot, it's like, I can't do anything. It's hot, it's cold, right? So there are these ways in which we're more or less sensitive to the sensual and sensory aspects of life and how much it really matters to us, how much, how much emotional energy it takes in us. That makes sense? Okay, so what if you have a person who's going to cross the board? It's hot, it's cold, it's drab, it's pretty, it tastes good, it doesn't taste good, it's cooked, it's under good. Just, it just doesn't resonate by nature. They're just like not... That's the, part of the room. Right? So that person, are they going to struggle with, with most of the rules in the Torah? No. no. So you have a person... But some, uh, the pot, one second, we're going to get... So you have a person who, by disposition... They become kind of very deep, focused, want to mix, really get at the bottom of things. They're naturally frigid and they don't emotionally resonate with, with whether something is pretty or not so pretty, tastes good, doesn't taste so good, it's too hot, it's too cold, it just doesn't, doesn't register. If you have such a person with the confluence of all three of those factors and they grow up in a religious tradition, are they going to have a hard time keeping all the rules? No. no. So will they technically be doing everything God wants them to do? Yeah. Are they serving God? Yeah. No. Because none of that, as we're going to see, is them is their actual doing in order of bringing an awareness of God over and above their natural instinct, which is how we define what service of God really is. Now, that means from a Hasidic perspective, such a person is kind of a. Zombie. What? Zombie. Yeah. It's like a zombie. It's gonna like like Hasidim traditionally did not look up to people like that. Yeah. yeah, it's like they're, they're they're there's a there's a there's a Yiddish word nebach. Oh. How, they do know how to translate nebach into English. Pathetic. So the Hasidic view is that you look at somebody and think that's a pathetic person. It's like a, can't a we're going to talk about how the pathetic person get out of being pathetic. They're not stuck there. But it's pathetic. And the reason it's pathetic is, let's think about this for a second, is that person really living life at all? Forget God for this for a second. Is there really been living life at all? No, no. So let's talk about a tzaddik. Okay? Is a tzaddik, does a tzaddik have to struggle to learn Torah? Yes or no? No. no. Does a tzaddik struggle with sexual temptation? No. no. Does a tzaddik struggle with the sensory experience of the world distracting from God? No. no. So why is the tzaddik not really pathetic? Because they're a so I think it's going to make it to bring something to make you know, the rest of like like with their own cousins. Like it's no, living no. through that. Like it's like you're bringing up a new like in this case new case. Wow. Like, you're 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 right, but I want to go I wanna go a little bit more into the subjective experience. Okay. But what you're saying is true. <laughs> it, if you've have if you have ever had the experience about being I don't know, being in love or having a vision or something that's really important to you. Could something be really, really, really important to you so much so that you lose your appetite? Yeah. 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 If it has happened to you, you know that it's happened to other people? Okay. Yeah? Could you be so um, passionate about something that other things don't speak to you anymore? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, why is it Sadik have no problem? studying Torah all day. Why is a tzaddik not struggling with that's sexual like temptation? temptation? Right. In other words, the, the tzaddik is the opposite of a zombie. The tzaddik is somebody who's like brimming with this passion. The passion now. Right. And the passion has, has actually transformed to make those other issues just irrelevant in their life. Whereas this person, it's not the overwhelming presence of a passionate relationship with God that's making this the case. It's the fact that... <laughs> The, no, the person that they were talking oh, about, Tanya. Awesome. There's a, the, the person. The person. The person's dead inside. Right, but we also said that that's not the only trait. The other trait is that he completes things to the fullest and he cares about his studies. Yeah, I but but the, that caring about the studies, that caring about the studies, is not. This is very important. It's not a passion; it's a tendency. Like I'm explaining to you, that's why that's why, I one, that's why I brought up. I this lends a person to being very, very self-loathing. When a person's very self-loathing, it's not because they're in throws of deep passion. That actually like makes you feel dead and empty inside. It's just that they have, like they 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 keep chewing over stuff over and over and over by tendency. They can't let it go. There's an obsessiveness and a rigor to that, which again could be positively used. It can be negatively used. Just one second. So if, 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 you take this, if you take all this thing, put this back together in this person, this is like zombies a good way of putting it. There's a lack of life, a lack of vitality. The tzaddik is the opposite extreme. The tzaddik is one who has so much life, so much sense of vitality, so much passion, enthusiasm, relationship with Hashem, it's actually transformed their experience of everything else. So this person and the tzaddik are like diametrically opposed. Now the issue is, when you ever hear someone describing a tzaddik in the Hasidic, as someone who has no temptations in this, we tend to think this person. Sometimes you're like, "Oh, the tzaddik has no temptations. The tzaddik has no struggles. It's like, but the, the tzaddik isn't like this. The tzaddik is like someone, you know, who's who, who's so deeply and passionately in love with Hashem, so deeply devoted to Hashem, that that experience is just overwhelming and transformative. This person hasn't even learned what it means to like live life, and so they're just kind of like going with whatever kind of the basic norms of how they're raised are, and they're not." Pulled away from that, it's like the, it's almost like the anti tzaddik. Not in the sense of sinning or not sinning, but the sense of being alive. The tzaddik is a person whose state is life has reached kind of this highest peak of live of 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 experiencing living and experiencing being connected and being being, being engaged. And this person is like the exact opposite. That's what It means by being disposed to it, right? Right. Like yeah, just, right that's, that. that's just true. like their baseline. Right. So it doesn't really mean anything. That's exactly right, like that. right. It's 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 it, 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 it's, it's nothing other like other basic instincts that we all have, and so it, there's 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 a, there's a shell of a person going on there, okay. yeah. Is it like a, a nature versus literature thing? Like is it like how you were raised and taught to be a Jew and practice Judaism, or is it just how a person is? Naturally? This you could work on yourself to get to this point, but I don't think you should. But this is basically by nature. Now you could you can you can cultivate a nature. You can people have a certain degree of malleability. So you could like make right. yourself be this way. It's gonna talk about it I later. But there's no you point. No, because because cause because this is not this is talking this is talking about the person. If a person is taught to practice Judaism this way, but they're not predisposed to being this kind of a person, they they won't be this kind of person. They'll challenge basically the way they were. Like it's a, or they won't. So or they'll be the kind. the kind of person who like figures out like you know. There's, I mean, let me put it to this way. Yeah, one of the great, one of the great um, Torah scholars of, of of the of the turn of the nineteenth to twentieth century was named Rabbi Chaim Ozer. Rabbi Chaim Ozer was the chief rabbi of Vilna. The story goes that when he was twelve years old, his father sent him to go away and learn in Kollel. Kol was like yeshiva for married people because he was. Um, you know those kids who like can't sit still and like see their job as causing like everybody problems, especially their teacher? He was that kid. And his father's like, Okay, you're really smart, you're really rambunctious, I'm sending you to go to another town and you'll you know, this was a different time. When you're twelve years old, you're gonna go sit with all these older people and like you know, go you know you you you, you think you're so great, go go hang out with all these adult Torah scholars and, and and the story goes that he was sitting in one of these places, and he was young, 13, 14, 15 maybe, something like this. And one of the one of the great rabbis from the earlier generation, Rabbi Soselantar, came to give a class. And he gave us this, this very involved uh, analysis of a certain section of the Talmud. And in the middle, this uh, young, Rabbi says, you're wrong. And was <laughs> What do you mean, right? Yeah, he's wrong. Not true. What are you saying? False. So, what do you mean? He says yeah. There's a commentary, well-known medieval commentary, and it says the exact opposite, undermines the entire foundation of what he says. So, just total nonsense. What was he doing at the time? What? He was he was sitting in yeshiva, but he was like he was like you know ten years younger than everybody else, and there's this great rabbi with the white beard, and, and and they opened up the book and they look, and it was so Saunter says. You know, he's right. Um, that's not this person. You understand? Like that—that—that's a person who's like got a little bit of a fire inside him, right? Now, that wasn't—he was not a chassid. He wasn't raised by chassid, But like, like, we're talking about a temperament. This is a person who, like, had a fire in him, had a certain obstinacy, and had to work with it, had to deal with that, right? It wasn't like, um, and, and and in fact, a, a lot of a lot of great. People in Judaism who are not necessarily raised in a tzadik viewpoint didn't naturally have these things. They had to work on stuff, but you do have people that are like this. You have people that like you know, um, just from from. And by the way, um, you know, even if you talk about the Chabad, the Chabad rebbe's, even though they're tzaddikim, not all of them had this nature. Like um, the 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 third Chabad rebbe that's a nach So I'll tell you a story about him. He, uh, his, he married his cousin, and his grandfather was the altar who founded the Chabad Movement. He's the one who made the shidduch, made the match. So he went to his son, who was his successor, and said, I, want, I think that, that your nephew and your daughter would make a good match. And his son says, no, I don't think it's a good match. And he says, why? He says, look outside. And outside there were a bunch of kids playing outside, and the, and the way, game they were playing is they had a kid tied up with a rope, and they were dragging him around the courtyard. Kids do weird things. <laughs> Who is the ringleader of this whole operation? <laughs> the nine-year-old future tzemach <laughs> So the Alterba calls him in and says, "I want you to study this section of Talmud with its major commentators, Rashi and Tosfos, for a half hour, and then we can test you on it." Which is, by the way, impressive for a nine-year-old. Anyway, ten minutes later, he's back playing outside. So the Alterba calls him in, and they test him on it. He would mastered the section, and then the Alter rebuked him for for. Um, just, be, just because you mastered in 10 minutes, if I tell you to study for a half hour, you have to do it for the whole half hour. So, I mean, he had this kind of like, you know, boisterous and like, and, you know, there were other, there were other, there's, there's, a, there's a temperamental things. Like to put this in contrast, they say the Rebbe only played once in his life as a child. The Rebbe was just not a playful child. He was extremely studious and this. The story goes that one time the neighborhood kids came to him and said, how come you don't play with us? And he said, okay, well, what are you playing? And I said, we're playing marbles. So so the Rebbe said, so take the marbles and throw them in the air. They grabbed a handful of marbles and threw them in the air. And the Rebbe looked at them in the air and says, there's 17 marbles. And they all fell down. And the Rebbe says, are we done playing now? uh, The Rebbe wasn't interested in playing with other kids as a child, but... Different. There's, there's, it's, temper, it's not about education. It's not about being inside. There's different temperaments. People have different temperaments. Now, if you have all three of these temperaments come together, and you're raised in a religious society, <laughs> it's all going to work out smoothly, right? You have, yeah. Do you have all your kids on the same school, or do you have them in a separate? I have them all in. Well, the boys and girls are in two separate schools. No, I know. I know. Of course. I have, right. boy, I have all my boys. All my boys are in the same. They went or if they're different ages? And the my school. boys are currently all in the same school. Um, I actually switched schools because I wasn't happy with one of the schools. I moved them to the other school. Mm-hmm. Um, and one my oldest son is not going to be in the same school. He's going to, he, right. I decided a better school, their different school would be better for him next year. But I don't know, why, why is that? No, because I've seen at least things living in high Heights. Like some parents, I, I have you know my friends that are older or whatever my. School, younger, but they, like, they, well, my dad was in that around and it's very important to recognize that like, your child like to see what their potential is and what they need and what the right. they're And I've seen just in how certain schools don't fit yes. everything. Yes. And it's just, like, but like, the rigidness of, like, something, like, you feel like you're giving, like, that's the place yep. you should give it, because that's, like, what you would want for yourself and, like, what you yeah, would yeah. have But, like, it doesn't necessarily fit that's why I moved my kids. No, the, 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 the unfortunate thing is that because schools are community institutions, you don't always have the degree of flexibility you would like, but yes, to the degree possible that that's what one should do. All right. um, that's why I move my kids from one school to another school. Also, my girls, I move from one school to another school. Um, okay, so, so I, I want to be, this is, not a, this is not an ideology we're talking about. It's not a level of righteousness. It's simply a temperament. It's actually three separate temperaments. And if you have those, you kind of like, you know, Judaism is going to be pretty easy for you, you know, because you're not predisposed to do anything not Jewish, assuming, of course, that you're accustomed and you're raised with it. Right. Obviously, if you're raised in a secular society, it's going to be difficult to start keeping Torah mitzvahs because you're not raised to it. And why would you be committed to doing That's a separate issue. But we're, even- right. We're not talking. We're talking about within the con- we're just talking about in the context of the internal struggle because your nature isn't predisposed to Judaism. I think this is very important, by the way. The person we're describing here I think is pretty is pretty unusual, yes? To have all three of these things coexist at the same time in the same person? Yeah, yeah. So what does that tell us, by the way, generally about Judaism? Does God think Judaism and the human being are supposed to like be a perfect fit? Or there's supposed to be some tension between them? Tension. Okay. This is a very important idea. The al in is going to de- develop it in the context of Hasidus and and, and, and that, but I want to actually talk about it kind of general in Judaism. Um, The basic, there's a basic kind of idea in Judaism, which is that everything natural is bad, and everything natural can be good. What does that mean? It means that something, anything natural can be good if... It is subjugated if it is constrained to something higher, the will of God. But the natural thing on its own terms is, is bad. And if you want to just think about this idea very simply, the basic Jewish belief that God created the world. So where does God stand relative to nature? God is above nature. God is beyond nature. God is the one who decrees what is and isn't the case. And so in our lives, there has to be this notion that the natural life that we encounter has to be subordinated to something higher. And there are different ways of approaching that, different schools of thought within Judaism, but that's kind of a very basic Jewish theme. Um, and I think that's just an important thing to be aware of because um, I would, a lot of us in, 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 in I would say, the secular world or, 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 or secular society don't have that sense. There's, a, there's kind of the opposite sense that if something is natural, that it kind of inherently makes it good and worthwhile. And it's just not like fundamentally that is a conflict of ideology. And it's, it's, I'm not telling you that to convince you. I'm not telling you that to make an argument for it. I'm just making that as an observation. Um, there's, just to give you an example, if somebody very, very close to somebody dies, is grieving natural? Yeah? Mm-hmm. Okay. So put that into what I just said about everything natural is bad, but everything natural could be good. When, according to Judaism, is grieving good? So we have rules. For instance, are you allowed to grieve over Shabbos? No. Are you allowed to grieve intensely more than seven days? No. No, right? There's, in other words, you're not allowed to grieve. Now, now, there's, you know, there's degrees about what you person can and can't control. But without getting into all those details, yeah. Your you're, you're and, and um, the Rebbe's mother passed away on Shabbos. The Rebbe only started crying after Shabbos, because you're not allowed to grieve on Shabbos. Why would I be asked to do something so that feels so impossible? Like, why would we be asked to, if our mother like dies, like as soon as Shabbos begins? Why are we, like it's, it? It's almost impossible not to. Do it? So so I, I that's what this is what I this is what I wanted to get at the. One of the basic ideas, and I think this is a basic idea, I'm setting this up so when we keep reading, we'll see how it's approaching Thucydus, is that God is higher than the natural. God created the natural. And so you cannot be a worshiper of God and be limited to your natural existence. Those are incompatible. Because to to worship God means to to, to approach God as he is above nature. And so on a very basic level, every, everything in Judaism can be understood in a very kind of very basic way, guys like saying, is whatever you have, I mean, you're gonna, you're not, you're still going to be human, but it has to be subordinated, it has to be constrained. Now, then there's a separate thing, which is, okay, what, it has to be feasible, it has to be doable. So for instance, in the grieving thing, right, for example, um, what exactly is forbidden on Shabbos and what is not forbidden on Shabbos? Is the feeling of loss in your heart forbidden on Shabbos? No. I don't know if it's not possible, it's just not forbidden. What is forbidden? It's Demonstrations of it. I thought I should never like, put some mitzvah on your mind. It's not necessarily true. Oh. Okay. Okay. Um, and there's and, and, and so what I want us to, sort of to understand is that it's it, it's not a it's not a bug it's a feature as they say like the fact that Judaism is difficult the fact that Judaism has an, an unnaturalness to it that re, that requires a person to maybe rethink what they really can and cannot do is a built-in notion of Judaism like that that that's, that goes back into it that's actually one of the reasons why a lot of the ancient pagans have problems with Judaism like you have to think about this you understand why Christianity would have problems with Judaism because like They're mutually exclusive, like, you know, either, you know, Judaism or Christianity, right? But if you're a pagan and you believe in lots of different gods, what do you care that some particular tribe only believes in their god? Like, who cares? Right, also the Greeks. That was like the basis of a lot of Greek philosophy is that everything natural is good. Right, because paganism is really this idea of worshiping the natural and developing from that point. And so I think it's just important to be aware of that. It's a difficult thing. It's an extremely difficult thing, okay? We're going to see this in the context of of Chassidus, but I just want you to be aware, like, even if you take away the way he approaches it here, the underlying notion that just because something is natural, therefore it is good, it's just not, that's the whole idea of a mitzvah. The whole idea of a mitzvah is you would normally, you would naturally live this way and God is saying live differently. Does that make sense? Okay. And that goes back to just the basic idea. God is above the natural world, created natural world, and so the worship of God has to, you have to rise above to whatever degree God feels is a legitimate expectation above your own nature. Obviously, you're not going to do actual real you know, miracles because you can't do that. But so are you getting at the example of this person that we're getting about? So so, so these what? Are, so, these are their natural traits. So and so they they what they need is something that challenges them, right? That's how they get to the higher level. So all these things that come natural are actually doing. Like, natural in terms so so, in other words, if we're gonna look at the the person's worship of God, not the, mitzv- the, the mitzvahs. The they're learning are, the mitzvahs they're doing are holy, the tower they're learning is holy, that's all good stuff. The stuff that is they are doing is fun. We're not problem with what they're doing. But the inner person, yeah, and that's why he's described as someone who's not serving God. There's a sense in which this person is not really engaged with God at all, even though the life they live externally is exactly in accordance with the will of God. Okay. Someone oh, had to ask a question. Okay. Hence, back in the text, he does not need to concentrate so much on the greatness of God to consciously create a spirit of knowledge and fear of God in his mind in order to guard himself against violations of the prohibitive commandments or rouse love of God in his heart to induce his attachment to him through the fulfillment of positive commandments and the study of Torah, which balances everything else. Now, this person has no need to actually cultivate an awareness of God. They don't need to be aware that God is great, God is important, God is real, God is true, and and they don't need to motivate themselves to abstain from sin, to pursue mitzvahs. And so, there's no God inside of them, in other words. I I don't mean that in like an objective sense. I mean that subjectively. There's no sense of God inside of them. Now, immediately the altar was gonna backtrack from this because we don't want to get rid of your sense of God completely, okay? For him suffices the hidden love that is in the heart of all Jews who are called those who love his name. Therefore, he is not at all called one who, serve, who is serving, inasmuch as his latent love is not of his making or accomplishment by it, by any means, but is our inheritance that comes down from the patriarchs, the whole community of Israel, as will be discussed further. So here, the altar makes the story a little bit more complicated. Um, what I want to do is I want to point out that he said here two things and start with explaining one and then the other. The first thing he said is that the, this person is actually serving God because they have a love of God. If this person just had the aforementioned three natures, they're naturally studious, they're naturally frigid, they're naturally not sensitive to the physical world, they wouldn't necessarily be doing Torah mitzvahs even if they were raised in a religious environment, unlike what I said previously. There is something actually that is motivating them towards the Judaism, which is this called innate love of God. And then the second point is, despite that, they're still not considered to be serving God. So I want to talk about this idea of the innate love of God. Um, and I, For that, I want to talk about this idea of a nature. Okay. Um, and by the way, even though it's something called the innate love of God, as he explains later on, it's, it has a love of God and a fear of God. They're mixed together. I don't know. So I'm gonna I'm gonna not worry about love of God, fear of God, and differentiating. I'm just gonna t- treat it as, a, as a, a unit. If you saw a dog, and the dog was standing in front of some food, there was some food, I don't know, across the room. And the dog wasn't going to eat the food. And this went, live, went on for an hour, two hours, three hours, a day, two days. The dog just stood there, looked at the food but never went over to eat the food. And this went on for several days. What would you conclude about the dog? Sick. Sick, something's wrong, right? Why? If the dog doesn't go over to food now, maybe they're not hungry, right? But eventually the dog is going to be hungry. So eventually the dog would go over to the food, right? Something has interfered. Something has gotten in the way of the nature of the dog to eat food when it's hungry, right? Okay. If you saw a dog jump into a fire, what would you conclude? Let's assume there was no, like, the ex- like, just, just, sure. dog is walking, walking down the street, there's a burning fire, and instead of the dog doing what most dogs do, which is run away from fire, the dog runs towards the fire, jumps into the fire. It's got rabies. Right, yeah, it's got rabies. Something's wrong with the dog, right? Clearly something's wrong with the dog, right? Make sense? Okay. Is that because the dog is a well-developed being who truly understands the importance of life and preserving life? No, it's, a, it's an instinct, right? So an idea the altar is going to develop later on is that Jews have an instinct. And I'm going to phrase it as an instinct. An instinct, which he calls the innate love of God. So non-Jews don't have this? Non-Jews do not have this. Now, if you would like to talk about that, that's fine, but it's not the topic of the chapter at hand. Now, what does that mean that we have an innate love of God or innate fear of God? I want to put this very, very clear. What this means is that we have an instinct to keep Torah and mitzvahs. So the Altar Rebbe is making the following claim in the time. Again, he doesn't develop it here; he's referencing it here. That if you see a Jew eating non-kosher food, what can you conclude? What would you conclude about the dog when the dog jumped into the fire? I don't know. But they're sick. They're sick. I I, I want to be. See, this is the thing. We immediately shift the thinking to preserve the humanity of the person, and, and then you ruin the idea. If the dog jumps into a fire, right? Since dogs do not operate off of like conscious, like why am I doing what I'm doing and modeling the world, right? They operate off of instincts, right? So then, what if the dog is jumping into the fire? What would we? And again, we're not talking about them, some overriding instinct, like you know their child, their child or their owner is in the fire and they need to. Just like a regular dog walking down the street, sees a fire, and jumps in instead of running away, you conclude there's something very wrong with the dog, right? Okay. Well, if a Jew has an instinct to love and fear God, which in practice means an instinct to observe the Torah Mitzvahs, and you see a Jew eating non-kosher food, what must that mean about the Jew? Something is wrong. And why am I not saying they don't why am I not why am I not saying they they don't know? Because the minute you say they don't know, what are you implying? What are you implying? That's not, adult, I'm instinctual. It's not, not, that it's not instinctual. Right. But this is this is the thing: is that the author is making a claim is that it's instinctual. I it. it's like they're they're going against themselves, like it's not right. who they are. Right. <laughs> but that honest. who they are is not a human. It's not a hu. Right. It's not like it's not like when I'm an adult, I'm saying like I I know who I am, like I've right. I, I my life, and I know it's important. Like not that. It's like it's instinct on the level of adult is isn't the yezahara an equal instinct. So doesn't have an equal pull. Well, the Sahara is kind of like rabies. Is everyone has rabies then? That's basically the claim. <laughs> that is basically no, no, no. This is no. This is this is exactly the point. That is no, but but. No, but th- th- that's basically the claim. The claim. This is the, this is what you report later on. In other words, the, and the, the this really this really changes. And if you want to like a difference between a Hasidic view and a non-Hasidic view of Judaism, this is one of the places where it is. Okay. If you see somebody, this is this is the Hasidic view, and it sounds strange, but I will say it in all of its strangers, and we'll try and explain it. If you see someone who didn't grow up religious at all, they never heard about Torah and mitzvahs ever. Despite all of that, when they're presented with a cheeseburger, something inside of them, should like, mm, I, I don't know, something about this just isn't me, not for me. And then they say, oh, I want to have it. Anymore. One second, that's what should happen. No, and one second, right. that's what should happen. Even though they're completely ignorant about kosher laws, they may even be ignorant that they're Jewish. They may not know that they're Jewish. And that instinct should, in fact, be so strong, should be, that they can't bring themselves to eat it, although they wouldn't know why. Which means now everybody that then is not having that experience is because something has gone wrong, rather than I think the more conventional way of thinking about it, which is that the commitment to keeping Torah mitzvahs is something that you have to learn, learn and gain. My friend told me. So when you say that something's wrong, you're saying something like a societal issue, that person. No, no. It would have to. It have to. Something has to go back to that, that person. It would have to be something inside that person has has. do you think also like societally, there's like influences now, and also like it's also the person also. Well, that's right? okay. You know, that, that that gets into technicalities of how it works, but it has to eventually get into the person. Whatever the issue is, society can play a role in that. I want to. I want to. I want to just t- tell a, tell a story, um, which. Is illustrative of the idea. I have a friend in yeshiva whose parents. I don't remember if he was born in Soviet the Soviet Union or after they left the Soviet Union. I think he was actually born in the Soviet Union. His parents left Soviet Union just before the Soviet Union collapsed, um, and he had only, like, his, his, he 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 knew that he was Jewish, like, not much else. So, how did he become religious? Saturday afternoon. He was sitting on the couch, and a thought entered his mind, which is that he's Jewish, and there is something called the Jewish Sabbath that he'd heard. So, if he's Jewish and there's a Jewish Sabbath, then what should he do? He should keep it. Now, he has a tiny problem He doesn't know how to keep Shabbos. What would you do? If that, like, you were in that situation, what would you do? Shabbat.org. How do you keep Shabbat? Right but it was Saturday afternoon. if he just He has no idea. It just occurred to him that if I'm a Jew, I should be keeping the Sabbath. I don't know what it means to keep the Sabbath. What do you do when you're afraid of something could be wrong or harmful for you? What is your natural instinct? You don't move. He stayed on the couch and did not move until Sunday morning because he didn't know what he was allowed to do, including going to sleep. And he didn't know when Shabbos ends. And he was, all of a sudden came up with a sense of like, I, I could be violating the Sabbath. So he just stayed like this for the rest of the day, all the way until Sunday morning. And then he got a phone book, because it was before, you know, hit the internet. Like, you way, know, And he, uh, or, and Chabad is a C, and I guess all the synagogues and the A's and the B's didn't answer. And he called the Chabad house, and now he's, you know, the big beard and the, kapotsam, the whole thing. But that's how that started. And what Hasidus argues is that's normal. When that doesn't happen, that's the, the that's the abnormal. That's the itzar, right? That, okay. So there's this. There is this built-in instinct, which is both a positive instinct to and a negative instinct to avoid. Which we call them love and fear. And it's not love and fear in some kind of mystical, spiritual sense. That's not what I'm about. I love God, and sometimes I want to go commune with the the infinite. No, it's the love of God. That's the instinctual love of God is that whatever is godly in the world, i.e., mitzvahs, the person feels a very powerful drive towards, like the dog's drive to eat food. And whatever is a separation from God, the person feels a very strong repulsion and fear of, like the dog's fear of fire, and it is purely instinctual. And if that instinct isn't manifesting because something has infected the person and gotten broke, warped in the person, and there's a whole other later on time who talks about the need to like fix that. So it's not that you then cultivate a relationship with God or cultivate meaningful connection to God. It's like that's built in. And so that would mean now, going back to our, our Beninim, if your evil inclination is not distracting you from study, it's not tempting you sexually, it's not alluring you with all sorts of like physical experiences and you have a natural instinct towards God and away from sin, then what's going to happen by default? You're going to be, well, you're you're going to be on the one. You're going to be, uh, you're going to be very, you're going to be very religious, right? But you're also, is that anything of your doing? Do everyone goes to the dog? and like, wow, such a special dog. It went to eat the food. No, why not? It's a, it's a natural thing for dogs to eat food. It's like, wow, look at that dog. It ran away from the fire. It's like, no kidding, like, you should run right? away from the fire. So that's his point, it's like, yes, and not saying that there's no, God is not involved at all, but the fact that God is involved has nothing to do with you as a person. Mm-hmm. You are effectively a Jewish animal. That's what he's describing, he's saying this this Benini who's who's, who, who's not struggling, not having to fight a war, it's not because they're devoid of any sense of God. That's not really true, because no such thing as a Jew is devoid of a sense of God. But the sense of God they have is purely animalistic. It's an it's a gut instinct, and it happens to be that nothing is interfering with it. Well, if you you know, you know, if the fish can swim right and the birds can chirp, like well, because that's what they are, the, the way they're made, right? Jews have a this natural instinct now. Many Jews, that natural instinct has been corrupted, subverted, concealed, obscured. And they have to do a lot to access that and get in touch with that and become okay with it. Okay, so they have to actually, as people, come to relate and serve God, right? This person can live their whole life as basically, effectively, you know, an animal. A Jewish animal, but an animal. In the sense that it's everything that is happening is a matter of instinct. It's being driven... It's not devoid of God, but it's devoid of any personal sense of God, any sense of God that they've developed themselves. And so you can't say they're serving God, even though it is being driven by something holy. Now, I would like to point something out. Children? (laughs) Do children, to quote the English text, um... Do they need? Do they concentrate much on the greatness of God to consciously create a spirit of knowledge and fear of God in their mind, and uh, uh, in order to observe the prohibitive commandments and arouse a love of God in their heart to motivate them to fill the positive commandments? Is that 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 children do that? No. Why not? No. You also have an ego. In fact, arguably, your ego is greater than children's ego because ego is something that strengthens over time. Because they don't have children do not have a mind that's sufficiently developed to do any of that. Have you ever spoken to a child? And by child I mean pre-puberty, so before bar mitzvah. Have you ever spoken to a child? Yeah. They're they're very cute. They're wonderful. I I have several of them, right? <laughs> I have five I have five who are who are below the stage, one who's already bar mitzvah, one's about to be a mitzvahed. But the five that are below the stage is very cute to talk to, and, and, and you know, some are smarter, some are less smart, some are more but the notion like I am going to take some sort of responsibility for my own perceptions and awareness of other things. And like, it just doesn't even like, it's, you're speaking about something that just doesn't exist for that. The uh, like would you ask like a little kid to watch your money or like a disabled adult, it's like the adult, they at least like, like even if they can't really protect the money like physically, they can they have the, like, they have a ways. sense of what you're talking yeah. about, right? So like I have a I have a thirteen year old and I can talk to him about like you feeling one way and perceptions and our feelings create perceptions and I need to take responsibility for for how we live our lives and not just the physical choices we make, but how we're going to process something afterwards, right? Like let's say you get angry at somebody, right? Which happens, we get angry at people, right? Do you then go on telling yourself a story about how they're an evil person, or do you like look at it objectively that sometimes people like bump into you? because they're a little bit inconsiderate and that's a normal thing and there's no reason to make a big deal about it right but to take responsibility in how you perceive yourself how you perceive the world how you perceive god that's, that's something that a child can even relate to what you're talking about and sometime you know around barbara's mitzvah age that becomes something they can begin to dabble in at least right now does that mean therefore children have no sense of god they can have very powerful senses of God, but those powerful sense of God, are they're, they're not their doing. They're something that has been embedded in them by their nature. And that doesn't go away when you become an adult. That's his point. It doesn't go away when you become an adult, but that's not called your service of God. That's not your making, that's not your doing. And so you as a human being, you as a conscious being who self-directs and decides who is important to me, what is important to me, how will I develop myself? What matters to me? That conscious, mature, you know, responsible human being is not engaged in service of God if you just have an instinct towards things that are godly and holy like all Jews do and you don't have anything that's temperamentally or culturally pulling you in the opposite direction. You're effectively in that sense kind of operating on the same mode as a child but you're missing of course the the, the zest for life that little children have because you know, Gotten old and decrepit because you hit puberty. And once that happens, like you start to develop a sense of self and a sense of all of that. So this person, it's not that they're just running on 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 like habit per se. There is something inside. There's something that's driving them, but the thing that's driving them is not of their own doing. Okay, does this make sense? This person is like a kid and like an animal. It's something like that. But they don't have the. They don't have that kind of night. N- naive charm that a child has, right? They have that kind of, yeah, it's... it's. Okay, now... I want to talk a little bit deeper about this idea of this natural love, because this is going to come, this is this natural of a natural thing, this is going to come up later, and I think it's a good place to introduce this now. What's the problem with this natural love? So one problem I mentioned already is it's not your own doing, right? I want to focus now on another problem. If a dog runs away from a fire, if you could ask the dog, why are you running away? What would the dog say? Nothing. It's a dog. That's right. No, and let's think about what that what do I mean by that, okay? And do this, we'll go back to children. Okay. There are questions that you cannot ask children until they hit a certain age. I know, because I have children, I ask them, and it's interesting. Okay. So for instance, questions of skepticism, like how do you know what you know? Try asking a two-year-old how they know what they know. It, they, they don't even have any clue what you're trying to ask them, right? You're not speaking on their level, right? Like, I have a two year old, so it's like, like, where's Tati? It's like, okay, how do you know I'm Tati? No response. Like, <laughs> like it just—it's a combination of words that don't mean anything. You see what I'm saying? like? Like, it, it doesn't—it doesn't register because they don't because the the, the two year old is not experiencing reality in that way. That makes sense. Okay. Children are great. Everyone should have as many as they can. they are a lot of work. I have, I have a friend who's much older than me. He's as. He, no, um, my, my, I have a friend. He's he's old enough to be. He is he is a grandfather. Actually, he's old enough to be my father. Um, and he he said that having children is hard, not having children is hard, but having children is the right kind of hard. So that's yeah, hard. For sure, hard. But it's it's it's. it's uh, I want you to have as many as they can. Um one of the meanings in Hasidus, and this is actually not the Hasidus makes this argument, but it actually goes all the way back to, to the first uses of the word. When we say something is 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 natural, what are we trying to get at by saying that? If I say, oh, that's it's natural. It's okay. So one thing is that it's innate. Okay. But another thing that we're getting at, which goes along with this, which is kind of it's hiding in the word and then you don't necessarily notice it until someone points it out, is that you shouldn't ask any more questions because there's nothing else to explain. Let me give you an example. Why is fire hot? Okay, so let's take those answers. Reach a certain temperature. You just restated that it's hot. Hashem made it so. So you you just, all all, all, you, You didn't really like explain to me why fire is hot. Now, say, well, someone's saying, oh, I could study chemistry and tell you why fire is hot, right? And maybe you could. Mm -hmm. And you would tell me that fire is hot because of X, Y, and Z things, right? And let's take one of those things that... um, You know what thermal energy means? Yes, okay. It's so funny when people use words. (laughs) There was a famous physicist. There was a famous physicist who was asked, his name is Richard Feynman, who was asked what energy is. I'll show you the words. Do you know what energy is? What are you saying? I, I don't remember the exact quote. Um, what? What? See, he said, this is not a quote, this is paraphrasing, but he said, well, stuff is different than it, usual, than it used to be, right? So the reason why it's different than it used to be, that's called energy. And it comes in little amounts. And you can never see it, but you can measure how much of it is there. <laughs> That's energy, but it's like, oh, what do I actually mean by the word that I'm using, right? So thermal energy just means the stuff. The reason why something is hot, it's hot as opposed to not being hot. There's a reason why it's hot. The reason why stuff is different than what it otherwise would be is called energy, and this is stuff making stuff hot as opposed to loud, so it's called thermal energy. It's just restating. There's a reason why it's hot. Um, but when you get to something is so you're, but when you start saying something is natural, you're actually starting to get to the point. There's a level where we're either objectively or for practical reasons, you're just treating that as a given. Okay, so if I say like, okay, like, why is fire hot? We say, well, fire is hot because, you know, when the chemicals recombine, the chemicals require less energy, the new chemicals require less energy to hold them together than than the old chemicals. And so that extra energy had to go somewhere. And so it gets released as heat. To which I'll ask, well, why are the new chemicals how, require less energy to hold them together than the old chemicals? And then you just say, well, well that's sure. that you say, well, that's the nature of these chemicals. And you, you, What you end up doing is you end up saying, like, it's just that's the way it is. Now, it's a cop out if you just throw that around randomly, but it's not a cop out if you use it wisely. If you say, wait a minute, there are certain things that are just. They really are a given. We can't examine further. So if you're a religious person, you say, God willed it to be so. If you're not a religious person, you just say, it's the nature of things. But you're effectively saying the same thing. It's a given part of reality that we cannot, we are incapable of examining beyond that point. Um, this is actually goes, on, the, the ancients discussed this, um, the Jewish philosophy discusses that there's actually a, a famous rabbi who got up once in Shul in the 1600s in London and said, um, what, what the scientists call nature, we call God. God is nature and nature is God. And then he was deemed a heretic and there's a whole controversy. And, and, and what he meant was, is not like the natural world is God, because that's not true. What he meant is when scientists say, well, there's just, that's the way it is. And like, we, we have to take that as a given and go forward. And, and well, why is that? You say, well, that's nature. But that's nature, as one of the students in class said, well, we would just say that God decreed it to be so. But the idea is like you can't you can't really examine it. You're just taking that as a given, which is not, by the way, always. Sometimes we use the word nature to refer other things. Like we're used to like the, everything that exists as nature. Sometimes it's, use that. It's word. like the way I see it is it's a matter of trying to understand nature. You can only ask the how questions. Right. You right. Can't, if you ask the why, you have walls. Right, right, and so what that means is, if your love of God is natural, if your fear of God is natural. Is there any why to it? Are you experiencing any sense of who God is in that? And the answer is going to be no. And if you would like a concrete example of this, um, I, I'll start with this. With with, with with I think it's an easier example, and then move on to the example that I really want to talk about. Have anyone had the experience as a child when you met your teacher um, in the grocery store or something like that, and that was very like, what is it's right? It's so weird, right? Why? Why is that weird? Okay, but it's a little... But, but it wouldn't be weird if you saw, as an adult, other people in a setting that you're not used to. No, because as a kid, your vision of a person is like what they are. They're doing, My like, they're doing like a normal... Activity. Okay, so I want to change the framing of it slightly. You don't, I really, you don't have a vision of them as a person at all. They're a, they're a natural feature of your existence. You have an existence. You have a life. In your life, you go to school. In the school, there's doors, there's bathrooms, there's teachers. I'm serious. Like, that is the experience of the child. Like, the teacher is not a person. There's no sense of them as a person. It's very self-centered. That's when you're a kid, because you're just like, this is... Like, they're that teacher. That's it. You don't realize. it's So now let's take that to parents. It's the same thing. So... And like, this is a very weird thing. And I'm telling you, like, this is weird. Like, like I'm not telling you how old I am, but I'm not 25. <laughs> um, and I started starting to realize like, I remember my father when he was my age. And I remember thinking, I mean, it's weird to say it because you wouldn't really think about it in these terms because you don't think about it in these terms. But the way I thought of my father when my father was my age, that he was God. In the sense that, of course, he knew what he was doing. Of course, he was right. Of course, like, his place in reality is to, like, make the world function properly. And, like, I mean, there's obviously no saying he's not actually God, right? But, like, no, he was a person with his foibles and his issues and his past and his, you know, and he had a life before he got married and had children. And, like, none of that even remotely registered. And it's weird to think that my children think of me the way I think, because in a sense, little children don't think of their parents as I people. You, you can. Once they start to hit teenagers, you can start to change that. By the way, the real mitzvah yeah, yeah. of honoring your parents kicks in when? when you can start seeing your parents as people after your bar or you Also, beginning. you don't get your um, rewards for your experience. Yeah, but I'm not just saying that because if you think about it, like the idea of honoring your parents, presupposes you recognize the, like, the significance yeah, saying, of that person, but it's very hard to do that when you're a little child. Mm-hmm. Also, when we said that the only reason they're doing midsize is because it's in their nature, and like right. the parents told them, is that why they don't get the. No, I was dealing, I, I just was focused, that would be true about every mitzvah. I was talking about specifically, there's a certain sense of the way that you can't truly do the mitzvah. Like my eight-year-old can't truly do the mitzvah of honoring parents because he can't see himself in service of me as a person. He can just see that like he's supposed to do certain things, which is not really what it is. I, what you're saying is true about general, about mitzvahs in general, that all mitzvahs and senses aren't there doing. Yeah. Yeah. So if you have a natural love of God, a natural fear of God, do you really have any sense of God at all? In was some kind of a sense, no. Because they have a sense of God with you recognize that God is something other than the thing your instinct is oriented towards. Like children have this sense of I mean, children are, we're not, we're not, you know, we're not just like we're, we're, we're more complicated beings as people. And so children have a sense of. Of, 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 a, of a kind of a, a social structure so they have a sense of, of father figure and mother figure and teachers and adults they have a, but these are not people these are just features of the reality that they're living in right mm-hmm. and it's a whole shift and it's sometimes traumatic to start to realize oh so when you have that battle that's when you have that sense of God when you have to start recognizing that God is something other than just the thing I'm drawn to Or the thing I'm afraid of being separated from. So not only is this natural love, natural fear, deficient in the fact that you are not actively involved in generating it, which is one meaning of nature. It also has no, there's no, there's no, there's nothing behind it. It kind of, there's, in a certain sense, there's a shallowness to it. There's an emptiness to it. It's, there's a how without a why. There's a what without a who. It's like, of course, every two-year-old runs to their mother or their father, but it doesn't matter who their father or mother is and who their, what their father and mother cares about. Like, it's their father and mother are just serving a role that is the social equivalent of the ground that they walk on. And in a sense, that's the same thing. I have, I have this deep, natural love for God. That just means like, if you sense that God is over there in that particular action, then you feel you got to go there and do that. And if you feel like that separates you from God, like you can't go there. So who God is and what he's about means nothing to you. It's just an object around which your instincts are oriented, like the fire and the food of the dog. So the natural love and fear of God, which is a very powerful force, and it's very powerful and it's a thing to utilize, but it's deficient in two very serious respects. It's not of your making. And it it, it, it has this, this shallowness to it. This just a sense that this is the way it is. It? So you aren't recognizing God. There's not someone serving someone in this, is there? To serve means I have a sense of myself and I am relating to you and I'm seeing you as important. And therefore, I'm doing things for you. None of that exists when all you have is the natural love and fear of God. The fact that you have these instincts isn't your doing, so there's no you. And these instincts aren't being directed at God as someone rather as something, and so there's no God in a certain sense. And so, yeah, it's, it's holy and it's divine and it's, it's profound and it's it can get a person to, to, to devote themselves to Torah mitzvahs fully and totally and great and wonderful, but that quality of you serving him is totally missing in that. Both the you're missing and the he is missing. It's like a child and their parent. The, the little child has no sense of their parent as someone. Um, you know, and 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 as you get older, hopefully that shifts and you recognize, oh, my parents have wives. That makes sense? Okay, we'll hold it here. Tomorrow we will continue. Um, I would like to finish the chapter. We have how many classes? Tomorrow you guys have a trip or no? Wednesday you have a trip and then next week you have a trip? No.